Hello and welcome to another episode of Eat This Podcast with me, Jeremy Churfus. I don't know about you, but I quite like honey as a sweetener. I squeeze a little spiral on my morning oats, for example. And I've always been vaguely aware that honey was quite often adulterated with glucose syrup or corn syrup or some other kind of sweet stuff. But I hadn't been aware of just how bad a problem it is. According to one database of food frauds, over the past 10 years, more than 1 in 20 food frauds in the United States involved honey. And that jumped to almost 1 in 8 in 2022. Australia was recently hit with a scandal dubbed, naturally, Honeygate, which revealed that more than a quarter of all samples were, quote, of questionable authenticity, unquote. And it isn't just the US or Australia either. A recent survey in the EU said that almost half, 46%, of the samples they looked at contained stuff they shouldn't have. And 100%, every single sample of honey exported from the UK was adulterated. Now, that's not necessarily to blame the UK, because much of that exported honey came originally from China, where honey fraud is rampant. Honey is, in fact, the world's third most adulterated food. But strangely, you don't actually hear much about this, except immediately after a scandal is revealed. I wanted to know more, so I spoke to Matt Philpott, a historian in England who studied the history of honey adulteration. So first off, why is honey such a big target for fraudsters? It's become a bit of a luxury product, so it can be worth a little bit more in terms of money per pot. And it's easy to adulterate, and that's one of the key things about it. It's easy to fake it because honey doesn't taste the same. If you get honey from Heather in Scotland or from Makusha in New Zealand, it's very different type of honey. Um, it's got very different nutrients, different qualities, different taste, different look. It crystallizes at a different rate. So some will be completely set by the time it gets into the jar. Others will be very, very much liquid for a longer period of time, which means that for adulterating it, it's easier because nobody can be 100% certain when they're eating something that it isn't real honey because it varies so much. I mean, it's, it's largely because um, sort of glucose syrup, corn syrups are also really, really cheap and cheaper than honey to produce. So if you replace one with the other or mix the two, you save a lot of money from the production side, which can then um, result in more profit. If people are adding other sorts of sugar to honey, presumably it's not actually a, a, a threat to health. Yeah. Is that right? But, um, in terms of things like glucose syrup, etc., no, there's no actual problem with health other than the fact that you're not actually getting the good qualities of honey. Honey produces a lot more nutrients, a lot more things that are good for you whilst being sweet, while glucose syrup, it's sweet, it tastes nice, but it doesn't actually provide those same health benefits. So you don't get those health benefits as much, but it doesn't harm your health either. It's not causing harm, but it's not necessarily allowing you to have the benefits of, of what, why you might have brought the honey in the first place. 
Adulteration with glucose syrup and, and corn syrup, I mean, those are fairly recent commodities. Um, so how long ago did honey adulteration start? Well, honey adulteration goes way back to sort of classical era. Um, Pliny the Elder talks about honey adulteration, um, for example, but that was largely a different kind of adulteration with glucose that comes in around sort of end of the 18th century, early 19th century, when they started to manufacture a glucose syrup. So glucose is an actually, you know, is, is a natural product um, itself. You can get glucose sort of sugars from sort of flowers and so forth. That's how bees make their honey in the first place. Mm-hmm. But the manufacture of it was a, a invention of the sort of industrial revolution, really. And it was also quite often a bit of a byproduct. So there's lots of it around and not many uses for it initially. So it was a, a useful liquid to be able to replace honey with or at least mix into it. I'm intrigued by the, you, you mentioned Pliny the Elder. Let's just go back. What, what, what were the Romans adulterating honey with then? It's mainly starches. So until the sort of 19th century, it was mainly some kind of starch that was used. So other kind of substances that would basically create starch. And the idea would be that you kind of, you dilute the honey and use this for bulk, for weight in the honey. And also to make the color look a nicer color for the honey sometimes as well. Coming, coming forward then, when did people start, I don't know, no, not noticing, but complaining about Oh, maybe noticing as well, but how did, how did adulteration of honey become a, a topic of interest? It, it was always known on some level, I think. Um, you know, there, there'd been a problem with food adulteration in general, I'm going back to Pliny again. Um, it's always been an issue in some form or another, but it is really the 19th century where it really takes off. So in the US, in the UK, there was an increasing amount of urbanization, um, a larger population, and an increase, and because of both of those, increasing amount of people that were not farming themselves and not getting food from the local area. So there was a lot more transportation of food. And this meant that food became more industrialized at that same time. And it also meant that there was more opportunity for adulteration to happen. But, but specifically as far as honey is concerned? Yeah, so specifically for honey, beekeepers were aware that there was an issue probably before the public were aware that there was an issue. And there was also a lot of confusion. So for the public, where it, if you imagine a jar of honey, um, sort of clear liquid honey, it will crystallize or candy at some point. It will start to set or get those kind of crystally bits in it. People generally don't like that. And so that turned into a misunderstanding that crystallization was a form of adulteration. It meant that that honey was adulterated. And that was a big problem for beekeepers because it's, Literally, the, the opposite is, is usually true, that actually the stuff that wasn't crystallizing was more likely to be glucose syrup. There was this misunderstanding in the public, but there was this knowledge that honey was being adulterated, and that increasingly changed their habits. So honey from a comb was considered potentially better quality honey, than a liquid honey because they thought that it was less likely to be adulterated. So people started to try to buy comb honey more often. But then it was claimed that um, comb honey could be adulterated as well. 
So the public began to turn off that as well. And so it was a constant battle to actually show that honey could be pure and what pure honey actually actually is. So people were concerned about it. Um, obviously, because it's in this period, it is a more of a luxury item. It's not a necessity. Sugar had largely taken over that role. So it wasn't quite the same big issue, but it was still important. You, you, you started off saying that beekeepers became aware of the problem first. So can we assume that it wasn't beekeepers who were doing the adulteration, that it was middlemen or, or distributors or something, something like that? I, I hesitate to say definitely that's the case, only because the evidence I'm, I'm using here comes from beekeepers mostly themselves. Most of my research has been around two bee journals of the 19th century, one in Britain, one in America. And they are very clear that most beekeepers, not all, but the vast majority, they're not adulterating the honey. They are providing pure honey. And that it's these middlemen that are then buying honey in bulk from these beekeepers, then adulterating it and then selling it on at a higher, higher amount. The evidence I do know for certain in the US especially, it does look like that was very much the case. There were certain pockets where this was really, really bad and really, really happening um, amongst these middlemen. In the UK, it's a bit more murky and a bit more, un I, I don't really know for certain. It's usually the middlemen, but it's not always. There are certain beekeepers that are going to be doing these bad practices themselves as well. So, and beekeepers, at the time, didn't really like to admit that that was the case. And is it, I mean, if as a, as a consumer, um, is it always the case that it's cheap honey that's adulterated or? Not necessarily. Or is the sort of? Yeah, not necessarily, unfortunately. Uh, often, I think, if you buy a sort of a, a one pound bottle of honey, jar of honey, chances are much higher that it's going to be adulterated. It's not. Not 100%, but there's a higher chance that there'll oh, be... Oh, you, you mean a pound of money? A pound of money, sorry, yes. Um, so, or the equivalent, a dollar, et cetera. So a really cheap jar of honey, basically. That's more likely to be adulterated than an expensive one, but it's not guaranteed because there's, in a way, more money to be made of, say, a, a really expensive honey. If you adulterate that, you can make more of that honey and get more money back. So if they can get away with it, then... So, yeah more expensive honey, you're more likely to be getting a pure product. So there's no 100% guarantee. But I would say if you buy a really cheap jar of honey, you've got a much higher chance of adulterated honey. There's also this, there is a sort of um, artisanal boutique-y kind of honey thing of, you know, uh, gathered from single flowers in particular parts of the world and so on and so forth. That, that must be a target for adulteration too. It will be. Um, again, I, my, I haven't got the evidence for this, but my feeling is it's less likely to be adulterated to the same extent because those kind of boutique honeys, you expect to get a certain flavour and a certain smell, not necessarily knowing exactly what they'll be because it does vary, but they will have a different taste than an ordinary bog-standard honey. So you, you can't just fill it up with, glu with kind of corn syrups or glucose-type syrups. You do need to have vast majority of that to be real honey and because it's single you know single origin it's going to be harder to adulterate where most of the adulteration still happens is where they're mixing honeys oh. and so that gives an opportunity 
to actually adulterate. It's much more difficult when it's a single origin. So yes, I, I suspect the temptation is there for single origin and it probably does happen. My feeling is if you get single origin honey, it's a much higher chance of not being adulterated that it's safe. Yeah. And one of the things that's odd, I mean, preparing for this, I, I was sort of looking online at, at examples, and there are many of them of, of adulterated honey, but there doesn't seem to be any huge public outrage at the fact that, you know, I don't know, 46% of European honeys are adulterated or 100% of honey exported from the UK is adulterated. There doesn't seem to be a sort of public outrage about it like there was, say, with bits of horse meat in, in beef pies in England. Why do you think that is? It's interesting, isn't it? Um, I think it is because it's a luxury item. Um, it's not something that everyone consumes. It's not something that you just consume on a daily basis, or some people do, but the vast majority don't really think about it. It's just you, you buy honey occasionally, and where most of the adulterated honey is probably going is in food products. So it's not even the honey that you're buying. So the outcry just doesn't seem to be there. It, it does surface from time to time, but where it has appeared in the media, it always disappears within a few days. It rarely takes off as a, as a big news item. And I don't know why that is, but it does seem that the interest just isn't there. And how does it affect, as it were, honest beekeepers? So in the 19th century, there's definitely was an effect. It reduced the cost of honey massively compared to the cost of production. So they would start to increasingly see less money for each jar of honey that they sold. They also very much had an effect on their reputation. Beekeepers already had the potential issue of bees stinging the public. So there's always that slight difficulty with, with the public where the sort of beehives were located. And now on top of that, the product they were producing wasn't trusted. So they were losing money, they were losing that trust, and they were also themselves being accused of being the ones committing the adulteration, mm. which, as I said before, generally wasn't the case. Uh, for modern beekeeping, I'm guessing it's, it's very similar, except that the issue, the issue isn't really as strongly there. Um, in modern beekeeping journals and magazines, it's rarely talked about, actually. Um, it's not something that's high on the agenda. There's other other problems around maintaining and um, honeybee health and all those kind of things are much more of an issue. But they, it, it should be an issue in a way because, as, as we were saying, honey is highly adulterated still. I mean, if, if, if I were a big Chinese beekeeper, um, I mean, I'm selling to a middleman. The middleman's adulterating it they're going to have to buy their honey from somewhere. Um, they'd buy it from me. Um, I, I, don't, I don't really care what's happening to my honey because it's not my honey once, you know, I don't, I don't have a reputation, do I? That is part of the issue as well, is sort of the industrialization of that. So by set, you know, sending the bulk of your honey off to, the, to, sort of, to an industry to sort of transform that into a product, it's not your responsibility. It's not coming back to you. Although that is changing, you know, more and more often labels require an origin to be there, certainly to the countries where it's, where it's created. So 
there is a trail beginning to fall more and more and but it, it rarely gets back to that particular farm and where you do have honey which is clearly labeled as being from a specific farm chances are probably a lot higher that is completely pure because they do have that reputation that's right there on their doorstep and i know i know sometimes when like in a cold snap or 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 um when the flowers aren't blooming beekeepers are allowed to feed sugar to their bees is that adulteration that's a, a nice question actually and that's it, it cropped up in the 19th century and it still crops up now of exactly if what when to feed your bees and when not to feed your bees and when to take honey and when not to take honey so there's a lot of there are there is a lot of discussion about when is it safe to take your honey but the, yeah it is a potential issue and in, it could be seen that sort of some of that sugar, sort of sugar water, could get into the honey itself. Although the bees are transforming that, so in a way, well, exactly, the bees, yeah, the bees will change the consistency, the nature of that sugar into something else, just as they do with the flowers, with the nectar and the pollen they take from the flowers. So it it it's it was an issue in the nineteenth century. They were uncertain, you know, thinking is this an issue or is this not? Now, it's still the same sort of practices and there are things done to make sure it doesn't get into the honey because these things can filter in, but the bees are transforming it. So even if that's to some degree the case, as long as it's not all of the honey is coming from this sugar, sugar water, then it's not going to really affect it from being actual honey because it, it has gone through a quite lengthy process by the bees themselves. One of the things I find interesting also is, I mean, you started off by pointing out that honey is incredibly variable. Um, I mean, the, there's an EU definition of what honey is. Uh, it includes, it, 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 it even has kind of um, exceptions for specific kinds of honey that don't match its own definition of what honey is. So how much of a problem is that? really that there the notion of something called pure honey is is actually quite hard to pin down it's it's really hard to pin down and because it's so varied depending on what kind of flowers the bees are visiting um the conditions at the time you know is it so hot is it so warm sunny dry weather is it been raining a lot that all changes the consistency of the honey and the kind of honey that's being produced and it's also possible to take the honey off of a hive too early so it's not fully been transformed into honey at that point the bees are still in the process of making it into that and it comes off and it's it kind of goes off much quicker usually because of that and it's not quite it's it's kind of in this middle state of being a kind of sugary substance and a honey and it's not quite one or the other they are all issues that can crop up most beekeepers are careful about that and they do make sure that it has reached a, the right level um that it, it is the right time to take it off and they will only take it off at certain times of the year because of that but it does vary so considerably that it's really hard it's really hard to prove even with modern tests that something is adulterated because it does vary the consistencies vary it's not as if you've got a, con a chart which has it's got this much glucose this much sucrose etc etc that's not the case it, it's got a lot more it, it varies a lot more i read also that some of the adulterators are 
getting pretty sophisticated and measuring things like the glucose-sucrose ratio in the, in the honey that they're going to adulterate and then adjusting the adulterant to, to suit that. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's, it's becoming much more sophisticated. And the tests, while they're becoming more sophisticated, are always, I think, behind, behind the curve slightly. And that's the case, of, I guess, of any kind of adulteration that the adulterators will always try to find ways to get around the system. They know what the tests are and they know how far they can push it to make that, to make that work. So it's a constant battle. Finally, Matt, I mean, you're a beekeeper. I don't know if you have bees at the moment. Um, it, you, we've already said don't buy cheap honey, but what are the ways in which you can protect yourself as far as possible if you want to buy a jar of honey from buying adulterated honey? So as I said before, single-origin single, single origin honey is much more likely to be a, a real product. Um, but your best bet really is if you can get honey directly from a beekeeper because chances are they will want, you know, their reputation is literally on stake at that point where they, where you buy it from them. It will almost certainly be pure honey and possibly even their best honey as well. If you can get it straight, straight from a beekeeper, that's going to be your best chance of pure, good quality honey. Um, secondary, if you, yeah, single origin organic, the conditions for organic honey is slightly different than often other organic products simply because you can't be 100% certain that the bees will taken all their food from organic, you know, from things that haven't been sprayed and so forth. But you've got a much better quality honey usually there as well. So they're the things that you can do. Um, buying more expensive honey, I would say, is not a guarantee that it's not adulterated in any kind of way. But again, it's, it's a lot less likely to be adulterated. Matt Philpot with some practical advice to help you avoid honey that isn't quite what it seems to be. I'll put a link to Honeybee Histories, Matt's Substack newsletter, in the show notes at eatthispodcast.com. And that's also where you can dig into the archives, read a transcript, leave a comment, whatever. Once again, I need to thank all the lovely people who donate to the show, helping to make transcripts available for everyone, and paying for stuff like internet hosting. If you're already a supporter, thank you. If you're not, please consider becoming one at eatthispodcast.com slash supporters. And that's it for this episode. So from me, Jeremy Chirpus, and Eat This Podcast, goodbye and thanks for listening.